invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament story and book of Esther. If you are new to our church and uh, still finding your way around the Bible, this is about just halfway in your Bible. And uh, if you find the Psalms, you can turn a few books earlier than that. Esther chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 8, uh, chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. The main focus of the text and sermon is four, chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. And you remember last time uh, we began uh, this uh, mini-series on the book of Esther, speaking about the pomp and the overconfidence and the pride of the, the king of the world back then, King Ahasuerus. And we learn of the, a, a disastrous plot and the queen that we will uh, need to know if she cares sufficiently for her people to lay her life down. So let's consider now Esther chapter 3, verses 8 to 11, and then the uh, entirety of chapter 4. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws, so it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed they be destroyed. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And then turning to chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. 
And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Father, we transport ourselves uh, back in time to a very different place uh, with many different kinds of pressures and uh, a strange edict sweeping over all the land of death, Lord. And in some sense, it can feel uh, so different than our circumstance. Would you, Father, transport our hearts and affections um, to understand this story? Open up our hard hearts, Lord, by your Spirit. And Lord, most of all, would you show us your dear Son, that we would be transformed and changed, Lord. We need you to address us tonight. We need you to speak, Lord. So would you do the work uh, by your word uh, that no human on their own can do. Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Esther really comes down to this. This is the pivotal moment, and the question of the hour is, as all the Jews have a day on the calendar when they expect to be struck down merely for being Jews, as we read in chapter 3, what will the queen do? Uh, what will this person who has been selected in chapter 2 and appointed for this very privileged position, what will she do uh, for her people? Will the queen care enough? And it's a very dramatic story. I hope that uh, if you're maybe too familiar with the book of Esther, you're drawn back into the drama of this great, great uh, story and great, great question. Will the queen care for her people? And will she substitute herself? Will she lay herself down? Will she risk her life for the sake of this massive nation that has a day set when they're waiting to die? A substitutionary love is the greatest kind of love. Imagine, you're familiar, I'm sure, with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Imagine if Aslan were to come to that great stone table that we are familiar with. Uh, you remember his, uh, the, uh, the description that Lewis lays out of the, the deeper magic, the deeper love that the, the white witch did not know. It says, the witch would have known, if she'd known about this deeper, earlier magic, that when a willing victim who committed no treachery has killed, was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. But imagine if Aslan came up to the edge of that table and he considered the betrayer, Edmund, and he said, uh, no, the cost is too much. Uh, not, not willing to be bound uh, to be sacrificed uh, and to die for the sake of a betrayer. Uh, substitution, every wonderful and deeply moving story has some aspect of substitutionary love in it. I mean, doesn't Jesus uh, tell us and testify to us about this? Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Uh, if you are a Harry Potter fan, uh, you will know that one of the things that marks and set apart 
uh, Harry in the, the whole trajectory of the seven stories is a mother that before she knows anything about him, interposes herself in front of a, a killing curse and bears in her body the death headed for her son. She knew nothing about him. And he is struck down, uh, she is struck down on his behalf. She lays her life down for him. And this orients, this love uh, that is deeper than any kind of evil force orients the future of this hero and sets him on a course. Someone laying their life down in the place of others, others who do not deserve it, is the deepest, most transforming love in the universe. And the question is, in the story of Esther, will the queen care enough to do this kind of majestic, beautiful act for her people? So let's consider uh, the story of Esther at this pivotal point in, under three headings. A people needing a queen who cared. A people needing a queen who cared. And then second, why she didn't. And then third, what changed? A people needing a queen who cared why she didn't, and then what changed. These people need a substitute. They need someone who will lay her life down for them. There are great obstacles we'll see to that. And then third, what changed for the queen? So first, a people who need a queen who cares. Mordecai, as uh, the story introduces him, is a uh, court official. The story will tell us that he sits in the king's gate. That's a way of speaking about his official standing. And he, of all the people in Susa, uh, has opposed the, the evil Haman, the one who's against the Jews. Uh, this is a very, very proud man, Haman. Uh, he has commanded that wherever he goes in the city, people have to bow down before him and uh, offer some kind of honor and glory to him. And, and Mordecai uh, says, no, I'm not willing to do that. And Haman is so filled with rage that someone will not bow before him and honor him that he decides not only just to kill Mordecai, the story tells us, but his planning mind goes into uh, full speed and sets a plan to destroy not only uh, Mordecai, but all the Jewish nation. He pays 10,000 talents, as we've seen, uh, to grease, kind of the, to, uh, grease the, the, the wheels of this uh, engagement and this plan, this uh, transaction that he has with King Ahasuerus. And on that day, as that plan is set in course, they set a time on the calendar when every person who is a Jew in all of Medo-Persia, 127 provinces, is waiting to die. And when you get killed, if you're a Jewish person, all of your possessions are plundered and robbed and taken. I want you to imagine uh, that you got into the ballot uh, booth on uh, Tuesday. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you uh, what... Uh, person you should be voting for tonight, but imagine that you are inside of the ballot booth on Tuesday, and um, uh, one of the, the measures uh, that you had to vote for was a day when all Christians, a Sunday, when all Christians would be gathered up and uh, killed in this way. Uh, next Sunday, there's a vote out. Uh, all uh, people who believe in Jesus are going to be gathered up, and we're going to put them to death. This is the kind of force that this plan that Haman has has on, on the whole nation of the Jews. And there's immediately sweeping national grief and sadness as people rip their clothes and are terrified. 
And if you think about it, there's nothing they can do. What are they supposed to do? There is an edict that can't be turned around, and there's a day on the calendar when they are waiting to die. There's only one hope for them. If someone who had some kind of authority could go on their behalf, could plead the case that they couldn't plead for themselves, and go before the king and say, don't do this, reverse this horrible plan. The people spread throughout all of the kingdom of Ahasuerus are in a desperate need for a substitute. And in this story, we see an, a glimmer, an anticipation of a, of a deeply spiritual reality about all of our conditions in Adam as well. Uh, Haman definitely in the story represents Satan. And just as Satan has deceived and caused us to fall, there is a death day appointed for what we have done. See, outside of Christ, if we do not have trust uh, and confidence in Christ, just like the Jews waiting for that day of judgment, we will face a day of judgment as well. And the one who sins, according to Scripture, will die. And we, too, are desperate for this substitute for someone to care enough to lay their life down. So if there's a great need for a substitute, there's a great need for a queen who will care enough, we see then secondly obstacles to this substitution or obstacles to someone in royalty caring enough. And there's just two tonight for you to think about. First is ignorance because of a comfortable distance. The queen is ignorant and she's at a comfortable distance from her people in chapter 4. And the second we're going to see is merely simple self-protection. So first of the obstacles, why the queen doesn't care, is that she's, at a, she's ignorant of what's happening and at a comfortable distance. And then second, we're going to see a very simple self-protection. I'm not going to read through all of the communications that happen in chapter 4. There's seven communications back and forth uh, between Mordecai, who is so far from the queen, and Esther, Herself, But what these many communications uh, demonstrate to us is just this great distance that is between the queen and her cousin Mordecai. In order for her to even find out that this edict has happened, she's got to send her maidens, she's got to send her eunuchs and start back and forth communicating. What's happening? What's going on? Why is the nation torn apart by grief? A whole country is waiting to be struck down on one day. All of God's people in that nation are waiting to be struck down on one day, and the queen, the only one who can do anything, has no clue about it. It's a very, very desperate situation. But as she communicates, first she, she's very compassionate toward her uh, cousin. She sends out clothing to clothe him and try to care for him. But he says, you, you don't understand even the beginning of how horrible this situation is. And he commands her to do something about it. He tells her about what the edict is and what she must do to take seriously the, the plight of her people. Don't let your ignorance, don't let your distance from the situation allow you to turn off your heart of compassion toward your people. But the second great obstacle is simply that the queen doesn't care. 
she finds out that there's a day set. And she says in verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. As for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. That's a long way of saying basically it's too risky. I'm not going to risk my life for the sake of this massive nation. I think what she was hoping was, number one, because she had not yet revealed her people, she was hoping she would be able to hide her identity as the queen, not say that she was a Jew, and ride out the horrible devastation that would sweep over all of Medo-Persia, and potentially she, of all the people, would be able to skate through. And notice what Mordecai has to respond to her then, verse 13 do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Mordecai is saying, he pushes back against this self-interest. He's saying, you're not going to escape. You will be found out. You yourself on that day on the calendar are also going to die but you and your father's house will perish. So if these are the great obstacles, this comfortable distance that Esther has in the king's palace, and that she's too self-interested to move toward this great danger and put herself in the position, what changes her was my question as I was reading the story. What changed for her? Why was she persuaded? And how does that address our great need for a substitute. What changed for Esther? Notice cryptically how Mordecai puts this. He says, deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Very striking because Esther is an orphan, if you remember in the story. Uh, Mordecai has adopted her He's taken her in. He's cared for her. There's a point in the story where she's been taken uh, behind the, the king's uh, gates and palace, and he's pacing and trying to figure out if she's okay. This cousin cares so greatly for his dear adopted uh, Esther, but he says, you and your father's house will perish. Well, who is he talking about? He, she doesn't, the story tells us very explicitly she does not have a father. She does not have a mother. I think this is a veiled way through these kind of secret messengers to say, I am going to die. I am going to die. You are going to die. You won't escape. And I am going to die also. And suddenly, the edict that was faceless, that had swept the whole nation, that was impersonal in some sense for Esther, becomes very personal. She realizes, yes, I will die. But the cousin who has loved me and adopted me and taken me in is headed to die also. And suddenly the whole story shifts and changes. She says, I will go, and if I perish, I perish. The distance that she had enjoyed, the ignorance that she had gone through, and then the, self of, the sense of self-protection melts, and suddenly we find in this queen 
a caring, willing substitute going into the dangerous place to interpose herself. She, bought, she binds herself with her people now. Gather the Jews in Susa and fast with me. And she's saying, we are one people. I'm going to name myself as a Jew, and I will stand with you, my cousin, and if I perish, I perish. What changed? She knew that this dear cousin of hers was going to die. So I want us to see third, the power of this personal appeal, how the queen then began to to care for this great nation. I will go, and if I perish, I perish. This is, if you're familiar with the book of Esther, the change that sweeps through the rest of the book. From here on out, there's hope. There was darkness. There was hopelessness. There was a sense that everyone is ready to die on this one day. And in this moment, now that the queen is on their side, she is going to intercede for them. There is finally hope and anticipation that God is going to do something on behalf of her people. And as I mentioned before, We are in exactly the same spiritual predicament as the Jews were on that day of execution. We, too, look to a day when all of us, if we were in our sins, will be swept up and called to account for our sins. And there is only one hope to undo that curse and that judgment. If someone spotless and pure who had committed no sin, would intercede his life and lay himself down and not be ashamed of his brothers and move toward them in their predicament. And this is precisely what the book of Hebrews tells us about Jesus. It says, In bringing many sons into glory, the founder of our salvation had to be made perfect through suffering. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. See, Christ in the majesty of heaven as the the spotless, perfect son could have said about his people in advance, I am not interested in moving toward them and laying my life down for them. He could have held on to the splendors and the comfort of heaven. And instead, Christ moves into our history and toward our sin. And he says, I will be bound with this people. I will identify with them. And what happens to them, what they deserve, will fall on me. And dear people, you need to hear how personal this is tonight. Jesus did not die for a faceless people spread throughout all eternity. He knew you very specifically. We sang tonight, my name is written on his hands. My name is graven on his heart. I know that where he stands will be where I am headed. Also, the book of Isaiah says to us, promising to us the reality that God will not forget us. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. It was so drastically transforming for Esther to imagine the death of her cousin 
that she binds herself to this whole nation and says, I will fall, I will die, I will live with them. And in the very same way, Christ has said, I know you in your sin. I know precisely what you have done. I know you by name. And I'm not pulling away from you. I'm moving toward you. And everything that is mine, the riches of what I earn, I will pour out on you such that you will be treated united to me as a righteous, spotless person. Martin Luther writes about this wonderful substitution. And we'll close with this. When the merciful Father saw that we were being oppressed through the law, that we were being held under a curse, that we could not be liberated from it by anything, he sent his Son into the world, heaped the sentence of men on him, and said to him, Be Peter, the denier, Paul, the persecutor, blasphemer, assaulter, David, the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in paradise, the thief on the cross. Do you see your name graven into your Savior? Do you understand what he has gone? He does not pull away from you tonight. He moves toward you despite the fact that you do not deserve a master and a substitute. There is no greater love than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And Esther is just a tiny glimpse and picture of the glory and the wonder of a Savior who has said, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother, my sister. I will bind myself to you, and where I go, you will go with me also. May we put our trust and our confidence in this one who has substituted himself for us and find peace and joy and hope in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we... Thank you for the particular way that you have loved us. You've written our names in the book of life. And you know each of us particularly. Lord, I pray uh, if someone is doubting that tonight, Lord, that you would just overwhelm their doubt with an expansive, gracious love. Lord, would you work in us because of the way that you have moved toward us, Lord, would you work in us a burden for people who don't know you, Lord, that we would not be able to comfortably move through life until your people are brought into eternal life. Lord, move us out of gratitude. What a wonderful story and gospel, a true story we believe. Would you move us toward those who are destined for a day of destruction and bring them, Lord, to find the Savior who cared and laid his life down, not saying if I perish, but knowing he would. Lord, would you do that in our hearts and bring, Lord, many sinners into the eternal banquet of your glorious celebration in heaven. Lord, we ask that you would do that by the power of your spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing how sweet and awesome is the place.
dear people of God, loved by him, go with his blessing, actually stay with his blessing, because we'll stay for the congregational meeting. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you his peace. Amen. Did as we get ready for our